The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I think uh, the church committee totals it up, you know, in 1970, early 1970s, we were at, you know, like 37,000 open cases. By 1977, I think we were down to like 46, you know, it's a couple dozen. There was a radical change in that. And, and that was a shift from looking at subversion to looking at a criminal act. And so we were going after the domestic terrorists. You know, SLA kidnaps Patty Hearst. You know, Weather Underground is bombing places. We're looking at these groups. Not we're looking at them because, you know, they're radicals. We're looking at them because they're leaving explosives around where people can get hurt. I'm David Chris, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 28th, 2021. Today's podcast is the second half of a two-part discussion with FBI historian John Fox, It continues our whirlwind tour of the Bureau, focused on its use of wiretap evidence, SIGINT, and other intelligence. In our last episode, which aired on June 23rd, John and I worked our way from the FBI's founding through the era of Prohibition and Gangsters, World War II, and part of the Cold War, including the prosecution of DOJ official Judith Coplin, based on information from NSA's Project Venona. Attentive listeners will recall that Venona was itself the topic, of a prior historical podcast. In today's episode, we move forward through the FBI's more recent history to cover abuses revealed in the 1970s, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, as well as some present-day issues. And in the larger frame, today's podcast is part of the series of historical inquiries I've been conducting with U.S. and Five Eyes intelligence agencies, I hope with more to come. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 28th, the FBI, part two. Okay, so Judith Coplin and and also coming out of this, Venona is the Rosenbergs, Alger Hiss. I mean, there's a contribution, I think, in there and others as well. Absolutely, right? and you know what? It's it's interesting because, of course, both decisions get overturned mm-hmm. against Coplin, yeah, although not dismissed, and so she's kind of under legal threat you know at least for a while you know but the knows the government's never going after her and you know of course she ends up marrying one of her attorneys um eventually opening a restaurant in new york you know died back in oh the late 2000s i believe Hmm. so never you know other than the the time she spent in jail you know from her initial arrest never you know served any any sentence Hmm. 
in that sense. But got her out of access. <laughs> well, it, that it did. Yes, she did lose her government job. And you know, of course, the problem is, well, all right, this is all well and good that we identified a spy and got her out of access, but if we can't prosecute any of these folks in court, you know, how good is this stuff in the long run? Yeah. And the, the Rosenberg case becomes, you know, part of this as well, because of course, you know, Julius Rosenberg is mentioned by cover name in the Venona traffic is liberal and, and uh, his spying, you know, there's evidence of it in there. Now it's not clear exactly when, ASA and eventually NSA and the bureau knew what cover names meant what right seem as clear because she's identified in December of 48 but some of the others it's not really clear exactly when the information was decrypted and decoded but suffice to say what happens is Venona turns us on to Klaus Fuchs who was a German national Jewish scientist went to Great Britain to obviously avoid Hitler and then was eventually assigned by the Brits on their atomic project because of his specialties. And so Fuchs was, you know, representing the British on the Manhattan project and spying for the Soviets. The FBI finds out about him. The Brits arrest him because of the differences in British law. He was able to be tried in court and the cryptographic issues don't come in. And FBI agents interview Fuchs. Fuchs coughs up Harry Gold, who was a chemist um, out of uh, Philly. And Gold coughs up David Greenglass, who had been a um, a worker at the Los Alamos project and had uh, collected and you know, transported intelligence from Los Alamos to his brother-in-law, Julius, who was kind of running this technical spy ring of, of people that he had largely gone to school with in uh, the New York area. And so the Bureau finds out about Julius kind of in this roundabout way from Venona. Yeah. But it doesn't, in the trials, DOJ doesn't have to worry about any of this because Fuchs is in jail in England. Mm-hmm. The Bureau can clearly point to, well, we got this from human intelligence, even if they had a, you know, get Fuchs over to testify, you know, he's not going to know about the cryptographic breakthrough. So he copped a plea, you know, he, he, he confessed. Right. Uh, so, you know, all of this avoids the whole issue of wiretaps, much less signals intelligence. Hmm. And so, so John, we've focused so far on a lot of these really amazing FBI successes, but I do want to spend some time on, on bad things. And obviously the Bureau has been involved in some really horrific and systematic abuses, you know, over time. And a lot of these abuses revealed in the 70s lead to some important restrictions, including restrictions on wiretaps and SIGINT, such as FISA in 1978. You know, there's a lot to choose from, I know, but you're the FBI historian. You've probably got a pretty wide view on all of the nasty stuff. What do you think are the top, you know, one, two or three things that the Bureau did that were horrible in the 30 years after the end of World War II? Well, gosh, you know, you know for, for starters, the, the whole issue of intercepting communications, you know, kind of becomes part and parcel of all this. And we've already kind of seen how, how the government convinced itself that, you know, basically using them in certain situations was fine. 
and basically not going to secure the legislative framework and protections that later Title III and, and FISA will give. And what happens is in the 50s, as the Bureau has, you know, basically because of Venona, because of the Bureau's um, other investigative work, we're able to, to deal with the Soviet penetrations during the World War II era in the sense of, you know, getting getting a lot of these these people out of government. And so they begin turning then to how do we prevent this from happening again? And this is where we start running into issues because it leads to things like, you know, basically the Communist Party of the United States had been at least in a better to some of these Soviet activities. You know, basically, you know, it was obviously a fertile ground for recruiting some of these people. You know, there was some active collusion by leadership in in identifying them and, and passing them on uh, to some extent. And so the Bureau kind of gets it into its mind in a sense that the issue of communist infiltration is a serious problem. And we want to make sure that the Communist Party is not going to be essentially an adjunct to Soviet intelligence again. And so we get the Smith Act cases, for instance, which, you know, eventually leads to the prosecution of, you know, some of the the major leaders of the the Communist Party for espousing, you know, radical views, basically. And, and, you know, you know, the Supreme Court eventually gets around to saying, well, wait a minute now, this is a free speech issue and, and, you know, overturning things. But it took a while to get there. And so the Bureau starts to go more proactively both against the KGB itself, but also against some of these domestic groups that that were helping them. That in turn leads to COINTELPRO or counterintelligence programs first aimed at the Communist Party in 1956. And that's where it becomes a problem, because at this point, we are beginning to focus on a group not because we're noticing per se illegal activity at this point, but rather because they espouse radical views. And this blossoms, for lack of a a more (laughs) darker word, in the 1960s as, you know, in a sense, some of these radical groups kind of morph and change and explode. And so, you know, in a sense, the, the old line communists are no longer in favor and it's the, you know, wider radical revolutionary movements that, that, you know, are really kind of capturing the, you know, the, the imagination of the youth. And, and we have the development, you know, first, uh, you know, see students for a democratic society. We have the, of course, the civil rights movement, um, which has both, you know, more, you know, traditional, uh, you know, American, you know, libertarian type arguments, as well as, you know, more radical, movements and and the bureau's focusing on all of these you know worried about communist infiltration and really more worried just overall about all these groups that want to change america rapidly and they get into you know these wider intelligence gathering operations against basically what should be protected first amendment rights and in the mid-1960s, as the anti-war movement is heating up, 
as you know the the student movement is starting to to fragment a little more between the more radical and the less radical they start applying CoinTelPro to these groups and what CoinTelPro was when it was created was the idea that we have all this information about the communist party why can't we disrupt their ability to work with the soviet union's policies mm. Now, the problem with that, of course, is it means that in disrupting a group that has a protected right to speech and assembly and press, you are intruding on those rights. And when they did this to the wider civil rights movement and other groups of the 1960s, it really started to get out of hand. And so you you asked me what the worst was, and I, I, I always come back to the the efforts to basically, um, you know, take down Dr. King's public reputation. Yeah. So there, I mean, so they are, I mean, Charles Hamilton Houston, who, you know, himself, no angel uh, and the author of a big plan, you know, describes it, I think, as going down the slippery slope from, you know, the communist party and the Soviet union to, you know, communist sympathizers to the political opponents in the other party to somebody with an unpleasant, bumper sticker on their car to some kid riding a bike. The big issue became, you know, basically domestic subversion or domestic radicalism. And as you know, the GAO was, you know, doing that study on uh, domestic intelligence for, um, you know, for Congress, uh, you know, looking at what the FBI was doing, basically said they really don't have a good definition. They don't even necessarily know exactly what they're looking for, except to kind of look at it and say, well, that's bad. Yeah, it starts to be like, you know, the long-haired hippies protesting the Vietnam War and the women's liberation movement and as you say Martin Luther sure. King and 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 they're all, you know, the the gay rights movements and, and especially, you know, some of the the more vocal and and radical civil rights groups. And you know, some of them were committing crimes, sure. but they weren't focusing on the crimes as much as they were focusing on the ideology. I mean, you've probably read all the internal records. I've read some of them and there does not seem to be as clear a distinction as as one might like and one might see today, one does see today in public statements about the distinction between ideology and espousal of ideology and advocacy for and Oh, they didn't make that at all. They were just going wider and wider out from center to make sure they had really high safety. And I, and I sometimes, I mean, that may even be giving them too much credit that it was all actually motivated by a fear of communist takeover because some of it did seem to be. Well, it it became broader than that. It was just a fear of radical change in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there is really, I mean, I think, I guess at least at the time the Bureau contested whether these fake letters written to MLK were an attempt to get him actively to commit suicide, but there's no question that it would qualify as some kind of domestic covert action program against a major civil rights. Well, absolutely. And, and not, not only was it, you know, in a sense, an intrusion on on Dr. King's rights, but, you know, it was in, in many ways, you know, obviously the, the higher ups in the Bureau had become very personally invested in all this and, and they're, hatred for for dr king was was in some ways driving some of this as well i you know they they saw him as as a hypocrite and as a liar and they thought he was a charlatan and you know they couldn't make a distinction between you know in an earlier day might have been called the personal failings of of a man versus you know the 
the message and actions that he was advocating. But isn't it also true that they really didn't care for the message? <laughs> I mean, to just, you know, I mean, put a fine point on it. Well, in some ways, yes. You know, I, it's hard to, to which elements exactly they, they um, opposed. I, you know, Hoover wasn't opposed to African-Americans voting. You know, Hoover wasn't, you know, a fan of lynching. The Bureau certainly went after the Klan, yep. you know, wholeheartedly as a radical organization. On the other hand, I don't think Hoover could see, you know, the truth in in the demands that African-Americans were making for, hey, we're not being treated right here. I, we're not being treated as we should. You know, and I, I think he was blinded to that. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not as nearly any kind of student of this the way you are, but it, you know, what comes through, at least from the limited reviews I've done, is a commitment to a certain kind of social ordering that is very rooted in, you know, certain standards, assumptions, beliefs, and and uh, sure. distribution of cultural, political, social, economic, and other power. The the status quo <laughs> is comforting. Yeah, and it's a 1950s or earlier. Well, or earlier, <laughs> because quo. you know, and 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 in some ways, it's part of the problem. You know, Hoover's now been in office for 40 some years. Yeah, right. The world has changed. <laughs> And there's also a politicization, don't you think, of uh, of FBI intelligence collection on behalf of you know both parties. Well, it's the... it's always a threat, and you know it, I think the the Church Committee you know kind of yeah. hints at it here. And I know, you know, for instance, I think Car- Cartha Deloach mentions it, but yep. all presidents have you know in a sense tread that ground between what is legitimate law enforcement and national security authority versus what is going to benefit me politically. And it became worse as, as it went along. And obviously Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon, you know, kind of, you know, seemed to, to be upping the game from each other as, as time went on. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to 
develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. Yeah. Uh, actually, if you, you go back in like early history of the church report and the staff who worked on it say one of the reasons it succeeded is because the abuses had been so bipartisan over time. Well, and, and that was Hoover, too, because Hoover basically, you know, until he started to, to really butt heads with with Kennedy and you know Johnson, you know, less so John than Robert, but, you know, Kennedy and Johnson, Hoover's job, as he saw it, was I'm going to serve the president i'm going to give the president what the president wants yeah Yeah. and maybe that helps the bureau too uh there's a great you know the (laughs) the great quote from dean rusk i think it is about how hoover occasionally took orders from a president every now and then he would do what what the attorney general told him and other than that he you know more or less (laughs) just took care of business yeah sure all right john so you're the historian where 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 are the where are the secret files and photos i mean you know (laughs) <laughs> just give it up. You know, um, well, actually, you know, the secret files were in the main files. I, one, you know, the assumption was always these are not going out public. <laughs> yeah. And and two, you know, the Bureau was collecting on everything from interstate prostitution to, you know, foreign um, bribery. Yeah. And gosh, for some reason, there are an awful lot of major people involved in some of these things over the years. So ultimately, you know, the information was in there. Yeah. The problem is what, what, what is done with it? Right. And, yeah. and do you use it for your own personal gain or are you using it, you know, because you are, you know, basically, you know, trying to figure out who DOJ should prosecute. Yeah. And so just like the thing we talked about before with the Duquesne ring and that sort of providing an allegedly encrypted communications platform, this also obviously resonates to the present. And I'm, I'm not as much asking you to comment on it, but just noting the parallel to current concerns about investigations of members of Congress and journalists and, you know, a sense that maybe the, the, the recent focus on domestic terrorism is concerning to people like Stuart Baker or those on the right. And there's concerns on the other side about the prior administration and, you know, the leak investigations sure. and whatnot and whatever was done. And so we're not going to go into that rabbit hole necessarily. Well, but, but if we think about things historically, yeah. you know, the, the problem becomes when, and I think the Bureau, you know, certainly you, you say, look at the, the, we're going to jump ahead of here a little bit, but when directors Kelly and Webster were trying to deal with the mess that was left. Yeah. After Hoover, when Hoover yeah. died, yeah. they had to say, look, we made some real big mistakes here. You know, furthermore, you know, as this has come out and in the light that it has come out, this is unacceptable and we need to change what we're doing and how we're doing it. And furthermore, now Congress has actually given us some of the legislative tools to do so, you know, whether, <laughs> you know, Title Three or, you know, of course, eventually FISA, you know, all these things. Yeah, they're not going to solve all the problems. And and the attorney general guidelines were a huge step in kind of just stepping back and saying, look, you know, we weren't called the rogue elephant. The CIA was. But, you know, we're we're not a rogue elephant either. We are operating under, you know, these laws, rules and regulations. And and this is how we're going to be. So let's talk about that. You know, after 1976, you do get 
AG guidelines. You have Ed Levy, the attorney general, trying to clean things up post-Watergate on the DOJ side. As you said, you've got yep. new directors in the very long wake of J. Edgar uh, on the bureau side. I'm a, I'm a little, I think, less of the sense than you are that the bureau welcomed the new tools in oh, the no, form I'm, of statutory I, I shouldn't restrictions, say... <laughs> but they've learned to live with them. <laughs> I'm kind of talking about how they've embraced them over time. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to necessarily in the day itself. Right. Um, right. You know, some of this was kicking and screaming. Well, maybe not screaming so loudly, but, but certainly kicking. kicking and, yeah. you know, scuffing the feet. Well, how do they adapt to the to the new requirements, the recognition of the abuses of the past, the stuff that comes out in Church and Pike and leads to those reforms? I mean, they have to sure. do a pretty major cultural and, and process overhaul. Well, well, some of that, you know, it, it obviously, you know, it, it kind of comes from from that drinking of the fire hose in the sense of, you know, the church committee really, you know, put us in a bad light. Obviously, uh, you know, general public opinion of the government itself had collapsed with Watergate in in many ways. The bureau's, you know, stature had had fallen quite a bit, and really, you know, Clarence Kelly kind of took the the approach of saying, "Hey, we've got to focus on what we do successfully, and basically, you know, what our basic mission is." And, and in that sense, you know, his his kind of watchword was quality over quantity. And so you see the Bureau kind of shifting its gears. And one of the, the, the biggest change was rejecting kind of that domestic subversion model of looking at all these groups and, you know, basically focusing much more on the criminal predicate. And it doesn't mean we did it perfectly or mm. that there weren't, you know, problems later on like um, CISPIS and so forth. Right. But you notice that our domestic subversion investigation numbers went from, I think uh, the church committee totals it up, you know, in 1970, early 1970s, we were at, you know, like 37,000 open cases. By 1977, I think we were down to like 46, you know, it's a couple dozen, you know, I, I forget what the exact numbers are, but there was a radical change in that. And and that was a shift from looking at subversion to looking at a criminal act. And so we were going after the domestic terrorist. You know, SLA kidnaps Patty Hearst. You know, Weather Underground is bombing places. We're looking at these groups. Not we're looking at them because, you know, they're radicals. We're looking at them because they're leaving explosives around where people can get hurt. And... In fact, I mean, I think at, at various points in the Bureau's history, you know, the split between security agents and law enforcement agents has been, you know, 50-50. And so this is a period of retrenchment towards uh, probably a little bit heavier balance on the law enforcement side. Well, and yeah, I, I think if you looked at it, you know, a lot more of us are investigating, you know, criminal matters than, than national security matters, you know, at least for a good part of this time. You know, in, in the 60s, it was there were a lot of national security investigators. There were still a lot of criminal matters. I'm right. You know, but the, the balance does shift most definitely. And I mean, you you take criticism from, you know, some historians, I guess, uh, like I'm thinking Kathleen Ballou in the 70s and 80s. There's a some people will say the Bureau was much too hands off in dealing with the rise of post-KKK white supremacist terrorism and the like. and Well, and you had some of those criticisms in the wake of Oak Bomb, for instance. Yep. 
and I'm not, I mean, I've read her book. It's quite interesting. And, you know, there is obviously a lot of activity, like I said, up in Coeur d'Alene. And, you know, there are problems that arise all over the place. I mean, you guys, you know, involved in a lot of stuff. Randy Weaver, remember that? And uh, Waco and lots of stuff going on, whether directly from the Bureau or not during this period that then gets examined from both directions. Well, you know, of course, you know, the big change between the 80s and 90s was the end of the Cold War, for one. And you've got all those, you know, kind of arguments running around D.C. here about, you know, a peace dividend and so forth. And, you know, of course, as far as, um, you know, DOJ goes, you've got that that beginning to concentrate on the rise in urban crime, especially from, you know, the drug enterprise operations in, in the late 1980s. And so we see the the rise of the Safe Streets Task Forces and, um, you know, the, the Bureau itself is shifting agents from counterintelligence, counterterrorism, since they were basically together at that point, to to these criminal major organized crime type investigations. Yeah. And that seems to be the focus until <laughs> until one morning. Well, uh, yeah, you know, obviously there there was a rising issue of of international terrorism through the nineties. You had the the first World Trade Center bombing and then you eventually have the uh, the coal and um, you know the bombing of the USS Coal and our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. So there was some some concentration there because by by ninety nine we create our counterterrorism division. So basically creating division thirteen, you know, that investigative component yeah. at, at headquarters, um, you know, to provide support to to the the wider range of counterterrorism investigations across the country. And when's the first JTTF? It's actually early. First JTTF's 1980 in New York. In New York, right? Yeah. Okay. And that arises out of basically the the fragments of the Weather Underground and and some of those groups. They had a bank robbery task force um, first, and they realized that you know after the um, oh gosh was it the Brinks Art robbery and um, you know the bombing of Francis Tavern. They really should be concentrating, uh, you know, in in the similar manner with the NYPD on um, terrorism, and yeah, you know, the JTTF model kind of grows a little slowly, and then of course explodes post nine eleven when, um, you know, uh, AG Ashcroft and Director Mueller say that there should be JTTFs in every field office. Mm. Amazing how that can galvanize change. So. You know, some of this post-9-11 history will be more familiar to listeners, at least those of a certain age. But one thing I do want to talk about is, you know, after 9-11, obviously there's, you know, legislative change in the form of the Patriot Act. There's a, at least a momentary consensus that we need to be doing more and more aggressively on the counterintelligence front to include CT, most of all. But there's also a pretty strong uh, sentiment among some that the FBI should be split, that we ought to follow the British model and have some kind of domestic security agency like MI5 without direct law enforcement authority. And the Bureau really resists this successfully so far. <laughs> some of that argument went, you know, with the idea, well, the, the, the Bureau is a bunch of cops and, and cops don't do intelligence well. Some of it was was the idea that actually maybe if they weren't focusing so much on all these other things, whether, you know, it was the, the criminal side of the mission or, you know, the, the service, the law enforcement service side, like, um, you know, criminal justice information services, you know, the, all the, the criminal history and fingerprint and, and other types of records and that sort of thing that they could concentrate specifically on, on that. 
And of course, you know, um, the, the RCMP had been a lot like the, the Bureau up until the early 1980s when they were, they had their national security function split off and CSIS uh, was, was created. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it was an argument, but you know, Mueller made, a, I think, a very strong argument that really this all goes together so much because so many of the things that we are now worried about in our criminal mission, whether it's, you know, money laundering to, you know, illegal finance networks to major organized crime has ties to these wider terrorism issues as well. And that, you know, really the, the failure perhaps biggest being, you know, failure to communicate on some of these issues was not a function per se of, of the Bureau being so law enforcement driven, but, you know, it was related to other things. And so in, in the end, Mueller's argument, I think, carried the day, you know, obviously DHS was created, but it never became that kind of MI5 type organization. And, nor, nor the way it was put together could it have been. Right. You end up with some fuzzy borders in like HSPD-5 between investigation and remediation of incident, but that's a different set of adjacencies than the one between yeah, the Yeah, I, you course. know, that's... Things are so complex, they're always going to be <laughs> <There's> always, <right. laughs> and, issues. And, no, and, and the policy of integration, I think, of law enforcement and counterintelligence domestically, you know, not only does it prevent the Bureau from being split, but across the street in about 06, they create National Security Division, which brings together intelligence yep. lawyers and prosecutors under one roof. And that JTTF model had actually been pretty effective. Certainly um, local law enforcement worked with it reasonably well overall. You know, it was certainly um, a sign that, you know, the FBI and NYPD could actually work together uh, you know, at times. <laughs> Every now and then there's some rough sledding. I remember a certain exchange of letters with A.G. Mukasey. But, um, well, yeah. absolutely. And, and of course, you know, you had those issues of um, uh, NYPD, you know, wanting to basically send its own representatives to, yeah. to foreign intelligence organizations and such. But, uh-huh. you know, again, nothing's ever perfect. No. But, but overall, that JTTF model was really strong, yeah. and, and they they kind of tried to do something similar with the the fusion cells, right? Created um, in the wake of nine eleven as well. So, you know, the idea that that law enforcement is is divorced from intelligence never really flew, which is you know probably a good thing because if you look at historically, you know, a lot of the intelligence agencies actually come from law enforcement roots, even MI five and you know, to, to an extent, MI6. And, you know, the FBI obviously has, has had such a central role in it for so long that you would have been throwing out the baby with the bathwater by separating it. Yeah. And so now I know you're an historian, but like looking at the present moment and anticipating looking back at it 10 years hence, John, I mean, sort of (laughs) what do you, what do you see? We've got Domestic terrorism. I see me writing about 20th century issues. <laughs> I see. Understood. Well, I won't press <laughs> no, you. No, no. But um, <laughs> you can press a little. But more. I mean, <laughs> we've got domestic terrorism sort of on the rise. The bureau's been reporting that, by the way, for quite some time now in its public testimony from Chris Ray and others. And um, you've got uh, now a national domestic terrorism policy coming out. Uh, you've got cyber threats 
from nation state actors, from sort of quasi private actors in, in, in nation states that are getting safe harbor and so forth, ransomware. You've got all kinds of cyber directors and leaders being appointed, trying to break down the silos. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix of domestic terrorism and Cold War nation state emphasis. We, you know, we've moved from a CT focus to a that sort of so-called two plus three framework with Russia, China, and then Iran, North Korea, and violent extremists the yep. fifth what what do you see in terms of potential you know synergies and successes that may emerge from this what do you see as the risks like falling down that slippery slope to politicize domestic investigations how are we going to succeed what are we going to do to prevent the mistakes of the past from recurring in this new setting i'd like a brief memo on my desk by tomorrow with answers to all of those questions also if you can cure cancer that would be super awesome as well <laughs> well maybe maybe after the weekend you'll right. have to give me at least a little time on that yeah. one you know for starters on the whole cyber thing you know for ages i've kind of been debating to myself for the most part whether or not the rise of of cyber criminal and security issues is a change in quantity or kind. And I really think we've shifted from quantity to kind at this point in many ways. And, and some of the, the issues and, and so forth, you know, they certainly have their parallels, you know, um, you know, the folks have raised in, in one or two places here and there that kind of the, the shift from, you know, cars using cars and crimes, you know, from horses and trains sort of thing and, and how that changed things. And, you know, the, the, the computer revolution, I think, is is getting there if it, it hasn't been there for a while. Uh, you know, on the other thing, you know, our country, basically, we embedded in our you know, constitution, you know, that, that First Amendment that, you know, we have a right to speech and press and association. And although there are questions on, on the boundaries of those, I, I think that remains fundamental to us and that where the Bureau is investigating clear criminal and hostile actor threats, instead of worrying about the content of speech and, and association, we will stand on strong ground because, you know, I, I remember director Mueller put it, you know, the FBI is judged not simply on the, the quality of our efforts in investigating these criminal violations and these security threats, but in how well we balance that with upholding those rights and liberties that, that we expect. And, you know, I use that as, as the controlling theme for, for any basic talk I do about the Bureau, that where we've maintained that balance as our fellow citizens want us to, our reputation has been strong. When we've failed, it goes down and it makes our job harder because people don't trust us with the information we need. They don't trust us to do the job we have to do. They're not going to make the changes in, in the laws or regulations that we operate under. And so maintaining that balance of, of liberty and security is, is central to our identity and necessary to the work that, that we're going to do now or, you know, in the future. 
So how that works out with the details, I'll leave that to the folks who are doing the job. Hmm. I just get to tell the story. You'll tell the story, yes. Well, John Fox, uh, FBI historian, thank you very much. I think we better leave it there. You've been extremely generous with your time and insights, and I'm very grateful to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.